Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, July 1st, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 1 to 22. Jeremiah puts on a yoke to proclaim the word of the Lord concerning the yoke of Babylon that will be placed upon many nations. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharp Brian. Delighted to be with you, Pastor Apple. As we get started this morning, Pastor Roth, let's talk a little context. We're in Jeremiah chapter 27 today. What do we need to know about the prophet and his ministry and anything particular about Zedekiah, who's going to be the king in Judah for our text particularly today? Well, Jeremiah is, um, you know, a, a great prophet and one that probably every every pastor should study, um, especially in, in the midst of a culture that is um, increasingly hostile to truth and hostile to um, submission to the Lord's will and uh, desires to cast off every yoke of authority. Um, so, um, you know, he's he's uh, you, you're going you're spending a lot of time with the prophet and let's not forget his lamentations too. So one of the things Jeremiah helps us do is, you know, learn how to lament to the Lord in the midst of our sufferings. Um, so I would say Jeremiah is a, a great example of the theology of the cross. He's one of the, um, the prophets who helps us see that the Lord works under the, under suffering in the cross, under trials and tribulations, that, uh, the Lord's hidden will, his alien work is something that happens in spite of the people's protestations and otherwise, uh, their their expectations for how the Lord should be doing His job, um, and um, in and one other thing to to remember in Jeremiah is that we should not read his book chronologically necessarily. Um, he does it. It tends to be a you know a series of scenes, vignettes, and oracles that um, are are not necessarily put in in order like a novel would be. So that's that's something key I think to remember about him. Certainly, Jeremiah is not always easy to place one particular scene where it is. Some of them, it's hard to know exactly where. Some of them, he is very specific as to when it does take place, but again, not always arranged in perfect order. What we do have in today's text and in tomorrow's text are two scenes that do take place at a particular time. In verse 1 of our text today, it says this happens in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Uh, what should we know about that time period, the beginning of Zedekiah's reign? What was it like? What was going on? What are some of those things that'll come into play as we hear Jeremiah's words today? Well, I mean, the, the doom is impending. <laughs> I mean, there's already been um, exportations of, Israel, of Jude, Judahites to, to Babylon, and some of the vessels of the sanctuary have been taken, and so um, these are the gray and latter days of the um, of Judah's um, life, and 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 the Lord is holding out last chances for repentance for the people, um, specifically to um, the the tribes that we'll talk about um, 
as we get into the text around Judah, who might be conspiring with Zedekiah to attempt to cast off the yoke of the Babylonians and uh, and, and stave off the, their um, subjugation. Um, we um, um, also should keep in mind who Zedekiah is. Now, one fascinating thing about him is his name means the Lord, the righteousness of Yahweh, the righteousness of Jehovah. And it is, it is a little odd, perhaps, to see that name um, pop up as Israel is about to, you know, be subjugated. But this reminds us that the Lord's righteousness is, well, the way he, his right, har- uh, right hand and his holy arm um, work things. And so this is going to bring about the exile of, the, of, of Judah, but at the same time, the blessed seed, the Messiah, is going to be preserved in the line of Judah through the exile as well as the return uh, to Judah some 70 years later. Mm-hmm. Now, we do know from, um, from uh, Kings that uh, Zedekiah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and uh, so the judgment upon him is not uh, a friendly one. And he will, uh, in 588, um, be led, humiliated into exile, and it'll be two more, two more years before Jerusalem falls completely. So while we date his reign uh, from uh, roughly 597 to 586, two of those years of him being king are in actually in cap- captivity, which is a pretty interesting place for a king to be. So that's the the time period we're looking at, the gray and latter days of the kingdom of Judah, and into that Jeremiah preaches the word of the Lord. Let's read a little bit of the text and see what Jeremiah has to say. Jeremiah 27. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Let's stop right there, Pastor Roth, with what the Lord gives Jeremiah to do. Make yourself straps and yoke bars. Put them on your neck. What's what's going on here? <laughs> well, these are not uh, necessarily for Jeremiah himself. These are intended to represent what should be placed upon uh, Judah, as well as the other um, kingdoms that we'll talk about: Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon. Um, and so, by taking these yokes upon himself, he's presenting sort of an object lesson. Um, a, a sort of visual aid for what the Lord intends for these these uh, peoples, um, and the Lord oftentimes uses these, especially prophets, uh, especially Ezekiel and Jeremiah use them. So, for example, you know, I'd have the prophet break some pottery, create a model, shave your head, strip away your garments and sandals, um, so you can you know send a warning through a visual aid. So what's, I mean, what's the visual with a yoke? What, what does that communicate? And I don't know, we, we don't all live in agrarian society anymore. Maybe we don't even know precisely what a yoke is. What's this image going to convey? Yeah, it's going it to convey an image of control. Once um, oxen are yoked up, and we'll also see the, uh, the straps, right? So the straps are used to tie this, this kind of um, um, almost longhorn-shaped um, image on uh, this longhorn shaped piece of wood onto the, the back of two oxen. Um, and, and then the cords are used to tie them together. And it is used by the farmer to control them as they're pulling the plow. Um, and so the, the, th- this is really a symbol of slavery, um, that, that you're under the control of someone else. And, 
Um, and, and along with that goes the idea that if you, you know, if the oxen try to go in two different directions with the oak, the oak, things do not go well. But as long as they just stay in line and keep marching forward, um, the farmer does not have to use a whip and they just will plow and hopefully be able to get some grain along the way and, you know, it, it will go better for them, even though you do not want to be yoked. That is not an, an ideal situation for humans to be under. Um, if you find yourself under that situation by the Lord's will, it is prudent to just simply not fight against the yoke, but to go along with it. So, so two things, and I think both of them will come into play as Jeremiah preaches about this yoke, is that one, it's a, an image of slavery and control that really you'd rather not be wearing but when you're wearing it, it's better just to go with it rather than try to rebel against it. So we want to keep both of those images in mind when it comes to this yoke as Jeremiah continues to preach. Any more before we see what he says about the yoke? Well, I would just simply point out that in Latin, um, coniungera means to yoke together. And that's where we get the word conjugal. And so our conjugal union is that in marriage, we're yoked together. Um, under a, you know, a covenant and under the Lord's oversight. And as long as we're walking in the same direction together, yoked together, um, it, it is a blessing to our marriages. And um, w- another important thing to recognize is that in the Lord's view, slavery is not necessarily a bad thing because the Lord has called upon us to be slaves to one another. Even the Lord Jesus Christ did not consider becoming a form of a slave something to uh, to shy away from, but in fact took on that role specifically to be our redeemer from sin, death, and hell. Um, so while we would certainly never uh, advocate for slavery, we also need to acknowledge that the Lord works through that institution in, in all of its manifestations, you know, whether social or within marriage or, you know, controlling the nations. He works through the, this means actually ultimately to bless his people. So let's take a look at how Jeremiah preaches with this yoke, this image in front of the people. We're picking up again in verse 3. Jeremiah continues, Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon, by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers, who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out, and you will perish. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, 
I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. That's through verse 11 of Jeremiah chapter 27. So the Lord, with this word that he gives to Jeremiah, it starts by going to all these foreign kings. Uh, Several are named Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, Sidon. Why the foreign kings, these particular kings? What What's going on here that this is the word and that's to whom it's sent? I don't think that we can say for certain why these envoys are in Jerusalem. Jer- are we in Jerusalem at this? Yeah, yes. they're in Jerusalem. Um, I don't think we can say for certain, but a lot of people have speculated that they p- perhaps were in dialogue with Jerusalem um, to attempt to form an alliance in which to resist the Babylonians. Now, this even in political terms, is rather stupid, but it's not the first time in history nor the last that uh, people make really shoddy alliances against overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly powerful foes. Um, and so anyway, I think, I think that's probably the context. And so this is going to be Jeremiah's way of disseminating the Lord's will to these different nations uh, that they should not kick against the pricks and try to cast off the yoke of the Babylonians. Um, all that said, I suspect that these envoys would not be excited about returning to their masters with these uh, with these yokes to <laughs> probably place upon the heads of their masters. Uh, this is not going to be a message well received. This is uh, because nobody, you know, um, well, as, as the, the, the song goes, um, Paul Simon, uh, a man only hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. Uh, this is probably what the kings would have done, and I think the envoys probably would have disregarded this message. At any rate, this is the Lord's will, and he's promising, actually, there's, there's, there's law and gospel in here, right? Or in, in gospel in a, a broad sense, good news. Um, the, the law is, look, this is my will that Babylon take over, that you serve him. If you do not do this, then, well, woe to you. However, I'm handling you, I'm handing you kind of like a way out. Um, this yoke is not necessarily desirable for you, but things will go better for you. You'll live and you'll get to stay in your own land. Mm. And I mean, especially I think in the ancient world, you know, we travel so much today and we move around so much. Perhaps we, we don't view this as a great loss to, to move from one place to another. But, as, you know, in the ancient world, to, ha- to be exiled from your own land was almost like a form of death. In fact, in you know, in ancient Athens, it was kind of considered social death, and it was you know the 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 next worst thing besides physical death is to be exiled from your homeland. Yeah, and, and I think you're you're right that there is that that law and gospel aspect to what the Lord says. So, just to again to set this context, perhaps we're getting a glimpse of a forming alliance of kings that Zedekiah is tempted to be a part of to rebel against Babylon. And Jeremiah is going to show this yoke to all these envoys Say, go tell your king this. Here's what the Lord says. And, and he starts, he starts by identifying who the Lord is. I think this is, this is an important thing to bring out in verse five. The Lord identifies himself as the creator of all things. He's the one who did this by his great power and outstretched arm. And he's also the one who, who still rules over it. He's very active and engaged in his creation. And even in these, these nations that are now conspiring against Babylon, you know, as, as I'm thinking about this right now, we just got done studying here at Grace in Smithville, Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 opens up with that picture of the kings, you know, conspiring against the Lord and against yeah. his anointed. 
Let us cast away his cords from us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think you're seeing a picture of it here. What's surprising about it is that they're conspiring against Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. As it turns out, that's the one that the Lord is working through. You mentioned toward the very beginning of our conversation, God's hidden will, his alien work. And and that Nebuchadnezzar would be the one to be, you know, God's the one that, that gives Nebuchadnezzar power over all this. That must have struck their ears as quite strange, just as it does ours still. Well, what does he call him in verse six? The Lord says, yeah. he is my servant. And so, you know, normally we think of the Lord's servants being, you know, the, the good guys, right? So Abraham, Moses, Caleb, David, Isaiah are all called the servants. Israel is called my servant. But here, uh, and, and then later with Cyrus, they're both called his servant. So this is one way that the Lord shows his, his lordship over all the creation, to show that he is not merely the God of Israel, but, well, of Judah, um, but he is, he is the God uh, of heaven and earth. And I, I also think it's worth pointing out that all these other places probably would have had their own gods to some extent, too. So this is the Lord showing his dominion over other gods as well. At the very beginning of the book, the Lord called Jeremiah to be a prophet, not just to Judah, but to the nations. And here you see him exercising that office that he is a prophet to the nations, and particularly again, Edom, Moab, Ammon, these people right around Israel, now proclaiming to them, here's what the Lord is doing. What what does, you know, use the terms again, hidden will, alien work, define those terms for us, and how does that apply here in this text? So the Lord's hidden will is that which we can't understand about him. We can get a glimpse of his hidden will in retrospect, I suppose you could say, as we study history. But I don't think we can push that too far either, <laughs> um, you know, especially um, in the short term. Um, but, but what we as Christians always want to emphasize above all else is the Lord's revealed will. And that comes to us exclusively through the Holy Scriptures. And so in, in the Scriptures, he shows us his will for our lives in the, the the commandments, what he wants us to do with our lives, his will that we be saved through faith in the Messiah, um, his will that we then walk according to his his ways. So that is what we as Christians need to keep in our, our minds first and foremost. To penetrate the depths of the hidden will of God is beyond both our ability and our vocation. Um, I think as the book of Concord says, um, he, you know, we couldn't do it even if we wanted to, but the Lord has never commanded us to do it anyway. So philosophical speculations and attempts to kind of look behind the curtain um, are actually a form of, um, I'd say, rebellion, um, because they, they're not things that the Lord has given to us. And there's so much for us to do on a daily basis, according to God's revealed will, that we don't have any time left over for speculation. And so, then um, keep going, keep going. alien work. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about alien work as well. This is a related term. Um, that uh, we don't know what in the world the Lord is doing when he sends uh, natural disasters, when he um, uh, brings about o- the overthrow of governments, um, and, and, you know, and when he permits you know, uh, people to commit all sorts of atrocities. We don't know. We do know that he is you know, um, working through these things in a way, not causing people to sin. That's of their own volition. But he does work through those things, as most, uh, most obviously, uh, you know, Joseph and his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, or the cross of Jesus Christ, the murder of God's son, uh, which brings about the redemption of the world. So those, um, 
you know, the, we don't recognize God's hand in these things. They're his alien work because they're not really what his goal is in the long run. His proper work, his goal is always consolation for his people, bringing sinners to repentance that they may receive forgiveness, life, and salvation. So what the Lord does through Nebuchadnezzar would have been a part of his hidden will until Jeremiah is given the word to speak to reveal it. And and just in that act, that's the grace of God in action, that he would even let these nations know, hey, you may not realize this, but Nebuchadnezzar, he's my servant. And what's about to happen to you, that's a part of what I'm doing. So here's what you do with it. You can either take it the easy way or the hard way. You can either, you know, try to cast off this yoke and rebel against my will, or as he promises, if you go along with this plan of mine, you will receive certain blessings. And and I think it's also important that we notice there in verse seven that Babylon in their actions and Nebuchadnezzar as king, they are not apart from the Lord and his direction of history because there will come a time, Jeremiah says, when Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon, this great empire that it will be, they too will fall under the same judgment that every nation would fall under. Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting because in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar gets a taste of this when he starts to get all big in his britches and think that he's got the power from himself. And the Lord actually ends up making him dwell among the beasts of the field and kind of lose his mind. And it's not until he lifted his eyes to heaven and his his reason returns to him and that he he recognizes that the, the Lord has been in control all along, that he humbles the proud and lifts up the humble. Um, but I also was thinking about um, a passage from Job 12 in regards to this, uh, Job 12, 23 to 25. Uh, the Lord makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark, dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. So this is a clear image of the Lord being in control of nations. Another image that we get, another very clear teaching we get from the book of Daniel. In verses 8 and following, Jeremiah indicates that there are those that, well, he, he gives the consequences for what will happen if you don't submit to the yoke that the king of Babylon will put upon you. And then he indicates there are those who would say, this is this is nuts. You're you're not telling the truth, Jeremiah. What does what does Jeremiah have to say, or what is he given to say about? He lists a lot of different people here: the prophets, diviners, dreamers, etc. Yeah. So he says, don't listen because they're they're liars, right? It's a lie that they're prophesying to you that these things will not come to pass. Um, now, um, one of the things we should um, keep in mind is that the Lord has no use whatsoever for false prophets, for diviners, dreamers, fortune tellers, sorcerers, and then some of the other, um, I guess you'd say, occult practices that are prohibited specifically in Deuteronomy 18. Mediums, necromancers, inquirers of the dead, charmers. Um, so the future belongs exclusively to the Lord. And it is always a violation of the first and second commandments to attempt through human machinations to uh, to figure out what's coming before. Um, we do far better to look backwards across history and learn the lessons of history, which, as Paul says, were written down for our instruction, um, than to try to look forward to the future. 
and to try to figure out what's happening. Um, so, you know, we, we see people constantly today trying to predict the future through all sorts of manners, even as something as seemingly harmless as a, a financial prognosticator. Um, uh, uh, but, you know, these ultimately are uh, at, at best just guesses about what might happen. As we've seen in the last couple of years, I mean, you know, just, just look at how COVID-19 has really changed what everyone was expecting would happen with certain areas of our social and political life. Um, it's been an upheaval. N- you know, no one could have predicted this. It's changed the way we operate within the church in many profound ways. And um, it's like the book of James says, you know, if you think that you're going to, you know, you know, plan to go on this big business trip and go all over the world and everything's going to go great. Well, who are you? You don't know the future. You're just a mist. You're just a bit of smoke. So humility requires us then to um, trust the will of the Lord and uh, and that the and trust that the future is his because he's already there. So, I mean, a text like this, as we think about it for today, we shouldn't look at this and you know, look at the newspaper or I don't know, I still read the newspaper occasionally, but whatever, wherever you get your news. And we shouldn't try to figure out who the Nebuchadnezzar is of today. Like who is the Lord using as his servant? Because that would be to dig into the hidden will of God. But rather a text like this should pull us back from that and propel us even further into the revealed will of God that's given in his word. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a big advocate for reading the old papers, not the newspapers, the, the Holy Scriptures, right? Um, so we, spend, we should be spending a lot more time with them uh, than we, we should with the, what's new. Rather, what, with what's old is, is oftentimes, most often, um, where we should be attending to things. Real quick before our break, Pastor Roth, those, those final comments here in this section of the word of the Lord given to the nations— Remind us again, what's the the promise, as strange as it sounds, what is the promise that is given here, this good news in the, the large sense that the Lord leaves these kings with? Um, well, he, he says that they will, um, ultimately, that the, uh, the nations will be brought in to God's people, right? Isaiah 66 says that eventually, at some point, the, um, the nations are intended to be brought to faith in the Messiah. And uh, the book of Jonah, I think, most clearly shows us this, that the Lord cares for the nations as well. He's not exclusively uh, focused on, on Israel and Judah, but he cares for all of his creation. So in, in giving the nations this promise, saying, hey, if you submit to the yoke of Babylon, you will stay in your land. It's, it's even a, an invitation into faith in the Lord as the one who does direct history in this way. So more than just staying in their own land, but even more an opportunity to put their trust in the Lord. Well, yeah. And just imagine if they actually follow this advice and are able to stay in their own land, they're all proximate to Judah. Um, Their children and grandchildren might very well get to see the return of of Judah, you know, the, the people of Judah, and perhaps even be drawn to the faith of the Israelites. And we'll see how Jeremiah continues to preach now to Zedekiah and Judah on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, studying Jeremiah chapter 27 with Pastor Carl Roth. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, July 1st. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 1 to 22 with Pastor Carl Roth. He's the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, prior to the break, we were looking at what Jeremiah is given to preach to the various envoys gathered around the the king there in Jerusalem. And now Jeremiah turns to address Zedekiah, the king, as well. So we're picking up the text in verse 12. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. I have not sent them, declares the Lord, but they are prophesying falsely in my name, with the result that I will drive you out and you will perish, you and the prophets who are prophesying to you. Then I spoke to the priests and to all this people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who are prophesying to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought back from Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Do not listen to them. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a desolation? If they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem, may not go to Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in this city, which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon did not take away, when he took into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Jeconiah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem. They shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. That's the rest of Jeremiah chapter 27. That was verses 12 to 22. So Pastor Roth, the picture I have in in my mind here for this text is you've got these envoys gathered around King Zedekiah in Jerusalem. It's a royal court gathering. They're all talking, and here comes Jeremiah. He's addressed the foreign envoys, and now it's like he turns to Zedekiah and says, the word of the Lord is for you too, Zedekiah. Don't think that somehow you and Jerusalem and Judah are exempt from this because you're Jerusalem and Judah and the temple's right there. They've been taking this false hope all along. And and in this context, particularly, it would seem that, you know, maybe Zedekiah is sitting there. Ha, look, he's talking to all of them. Now, Jeremiah says, nope, this is for you, too, buddy. I think it could be. I, I It is peculiar to me that the tense for uh, verse 12 is I spoke in like manner. And so mm-hmm. when we get to chapter 28, I do think we get um, maybe one of those 
flashbacks mm. and get a scene of some of the message that he ended up sending to Zedekiah as well. Um, so I, um, it very well could be that Zedekiah is sitting there, you know, smugly, you know, sitting back and then gets this reminder that Jeremiah had already spoken this to him. Uh, but either way, the Lord is, is, uh, right now focused on sending this message to these different tribes. So what does he have to say to Zedekiah? A lot of it sounds very similar to what's been spoken to the nations. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so this is at any rate, what he has spoken to Zedekiah. So first of all, um, the yoke is already there. I'm sure Jeremiah's got the yoke around his neck. So this is a visible reminder of what's happening. Um, then he says, uh, serve him and live. So the Lord has delegated his authority to Nebuchadnezzar uh, to serve as an authority over Judah and all these other nations. And so resistance to this authority is going to incur God's judgment, as, for example, we hear in Romans 13. Those who rebel against the authorities whom God established will face the sword. So um, the Lord is into authority. Um, He he, um, above all, wants us to obey him. The fourth commandment, of course, tells us to obey our parents and other authorities. And in this particular case, Nebuchadnezzar is an explicit authority figure. And in fact, the servant, same word really, that's used in Romans 13, the servant of the Lord, uh, just as the Caesar is the servant of the Lord, to execute, execute wrath upon the wrongdoer. Now, there's a promise attached to this service. Verse 12 is people... Uh, serve him and his people and live. And this is a pattern that the Lord um, uh, up, has upheld um, all the way from uh, Leviticus and the people of Israel um, down through Ezekiel chapter 20, for example, where it's looking back on what the Lord did for the Israelites. Uh, he says, I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. So there are blessings promised to those who walk according to the Lord's commandments. It's also really interesting in that Ezekiel 20 passage, the next verse says, Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So you've got kind of like life according to the law. You know, you obey and you will be blessed in the doing. But there's also this life according to the gospel. The Lord gave them the Sabbath as a way of showing that he's the only one who can sanctify them, make them holy, and give them the life that lasts forever, the life that comes through the Messiah. So what's happening in Jeremiah 27, to use that same terminology, is pretty much the life according to the law sort of blessing? Yeah, I think so, um, it seems to me. Although, you know, a lot of times uh, the faith that we have in the Lord is reflected in the way we live our lives. And so it could be possible that there's this kind of parting of the, the, true, the true believers from, from the false believers. Um, those who hear this word and, and believe it are then going to live by it. Um, on the other hand, those who hear this word and don't believe it and instead trust the false prophets are going to rebel against the Lord. And hopefully they'll be saved through repentance later, but they might have to, in the meantime, learn the hard way. I think those two do go hand in hand. And I I think particularly in a case like this, that as as you said, those who believe this word are going to do it. The word that's been given here is a difficult word 
uh, particularly I think for the people of Judah and Jerusalem, that they would have to serve a pagan nation had to just strike their ears as as crazy. I mean, even even crazier than some of the things that the Lord had had his people do other times in history. You know, the bronze serpent comes to mind. You, you, I'm going to look at that snake and live, or, or manna, that there's going to be bread on the ground every morning except the Sabbath. Yeah, and now you're going to go to Babylon, and that's where you're going to live? That that had to sound even crazier to, than that. But still, through that, the Lord would give them, yeah, I think that's right, life both according to the law and then drawing them closer to that life according to the gospel. Yeah, and, you know, if you want to reduce this kind of uh, uh, difficult kind of battle down to one person, I would invoke the prophet Habakkuk, who mm. seems to be writing around the same time. And he introduces his his book by complaining, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Cry to you violence and you will not save. You know, why is everything going so badly? And the Lord says in verse 5, Habakkuk 1.5, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's a remarkable statement. Look, I'm doing this completely you know, alien work that you would never have expected. You're not even going to believe it if I tell you. You're going to have to see it with your own eyes for it to happen. Mm. So, it, it, you know, putting ourselves in the shoes of the Judeans at this point, would we would feel the same way Habakkuk did. Now, in Jerusalem and Judah, there is also the danger of false preaching. And it seems that this danger is even more nefarious than the danger that was in the pagan nations. You know, earlier Jeremiah listed the diviners, dreamers, prophets, fortune tellers, all these things that, that we know, as you pointed out from the books of Moses, these are bad. Yeah. But in Jerusalem, you've got people who are calling themselves prophets and who are saying things in the name of the Lord, in the name of Yahweh. And and that makes what they're selling, these lies, even more dangerous. Absolutely. I mean, the Lord also in Deuteronomy 18 warns against um, the, the false prophets, and he, he gives the criteria for a true prophet. Um, whatever he says is going to come to pass. And of course, that's the chapter that prophesies directly to Jesus Christ as the ultimate true prophet. But, um, you know, given that the Israelites and the, here, the Judeans um, are the receivers of God's truth, his divine and holy word, um, the one who has that word must speak it faithfully. And these false prophets are guys who don't have a word from the Lord. They're just making it up as they go. Uh, maybe they had visions or dreams, but they're not visions and dreams from the Lord himself. So this, you know, Jeremiah is the great prophet of, let the one who has my word be faithful with it. Yeah, and, and these prophets, and they are numerous, we're going to meet one in particular in chapter 28, a guy by the name of Hananiah. There, there right. are many, and they're prophesying lies. And the, the thing that I think is important to notice in this text, and it comes up more than once, that these lies have results, and they're not good results. It's in the, the first section that we looked at, and in this section too, that what they are prophesying falsely in my name, the Lord says, it has a result, and that lies lead to bad results. I mean, I guess that's maybe the, the flip side of what we were talking about a moment ago, that when we have the Lord's word, we listen to it, then he, he blesses us. But when we have a lie and we follow after that, then there are very negative results that, that come about. 
Yeah, this is a really sharp warning for us that as we look at um, our own day-to-day lives and the, the myths that we make up about our, ourselves or the myths that we make up about our state or our country, um, you know, I think that the Judeans here are, are operating under a sort of mythology rather than under what the Lord has said in his word. And given what we know about the Lord's work among the nations, um, we can never become pres- presumptuous and think that he's going to do things exactly the way he has done them in the past, if he's been blessing us, or, um, you, know, you know, keep doing them uh, in the future. He, he can certainly change his mind. I mean, think back to Daniel 2. Uh, Daniel says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And then in Daniel 4, 17, uh, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. It might be that Nebuchadnezzar was this kind of, you know, scumbag and you know, the lowliest of men. Uh, but nonetheless, this is the, the man whom the Lord himself has set up. So you, we live by the word of the Lord, not by myths that we make up. Um, and we're all susceptible to falling into that living by myth rather than living by the word. Hmm. But dig into that a little bit more for me. You said Ju- the Judeans are living by a mythology. What kind of mythology do you think? And, and then how, do, how does that happen among us today? Well, Judah was God's chosen people, right? I mean, how in the world could God possibly um, punish uh, Judah and send it off into exile and make it slave to these nasty, nasty pagans? How in the world could he do that? No, he's not going to do that. So I think they became presumptuous. And and they chose, you know, as, what is it, 2 Timothy? Teachers arise who scratch itching ears. So I think that the itching ears of the Judeans were being scratched by the false prophets because these, you know, they wanted to hear the the message that Judah was going to be okay, that they they would not be sent into exile, that the temple would stand, that the rest of the vessels would return within two years, as Hananiah prophesies in chapter twenty eight. Um, so we always have to be careful not to just believe what we want to believe, but rather to be mature and see what's in front of our own two eyes. And then also recognize the Lord sometimes confounds our expectations. Hmm. So how do you how do you see that potentially happening today? Oh, or what's well, the danger? I suppose where that could happen to us today. The danger I think comes in any in following any sort of ideology uh, that believes that it knows what will happen in the future. So I mean this and th- this crosses the political spectrum, right? So from the most kind of conservative, patriotic people to the most progressive, um, you know, liberal people, um, they, they ought, they are, it's very easy to be captured by an, an ideology that promises something that will come in the future. If we just put these things into place, then this is certainly going to come to pass. Baloney. There's no way that any of us knows what tomorrow holds. And um, all we can do is the best we can on a daily basis at living according to the will of the Lord and then commending tomorrow into his hands. I mean, Jesus doesn't say, give, give us this, you know, give us tomorrow our daily bread, but give us this day our daily bread. And that includes all these temporal blessings according to the first article of the creed. And so if, if we were to become presumptuous in that, then we fall even closer, I think, to what Judah and the people of Jerusalem are doing right now, that they, they think they're exempt from all of this somehow because, hey, we're Judah, we're okay, that's an even greater danger, or it adds to the danger that you're describing. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, you could call it Judean exceptionalism, right? There you go. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, we, we don't know what the Lord is going to do with our own personal lives in the next minute, the next 24 hours. How could we possibly know what the Lord's going to do with the nations of the world um, in, in the coming days? Um, it's, uh, it's really a reminder that this is an enormous universe and an enormous world that is exceedingly complex. And there's only one person who can actually know what the right thing to do is for the future. And that is the Lord, our God. And so blessed are those who take refuge in him. That's the key. Take refuge in him. And he is that safe haven among all the changes and chances in this crazily chaotic world. Well said. I think that's that's so helpful. You quote the end of Psalm two there again. The the blessed are those who take refuge in Him. As as our text continues, then again this warning keeps coming up. Don't listen to these false prophets. Spoken first to Zedekiah king of Judah, then in verse sixteen, spoken also to the priests and to the people, and and particularly now we come to this matter of the vessels of the Lord's house. So. What's going on with the vessels of the Lord's house? What are they? Where have they been taken? Just give us that brief context. Yeah, so at some other point, which I don't have recorded here, some of the vessels of the Lord's house had been taken away, but some of them had been left. So we've got the pillars, the sea, the stands, and the rest of the vessels that are left in the city. The most interesting one is the sea. It's this, like, I don't know, 240-gallon bronze vessel in which they would wash the sacrificial victims um, and wash the, the, you know, the other vessels of the sanctuary. Um, and so these are the, you know, accoutrements to the, to the, to the temple. And these of course have been dedicated as holy to the Lord. And, um, and so they're, they're symbols of the Lord's presence among them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for those things to be taken away, you know, symbolically represents almost the Lord departing from them. So it, it, it's something that they really want to make sure stays in Jerusalem. However, these knucklehead false prophets do not live as true prophets. As verse 18 says, if they are prophets, if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts that the vessels may be left. Well, of course, we know that didn't happen. And so the vessels are going to be taken away, as we'll see in 2 Kings chapter 25. But uh, let me just, let's just, you know, focus in on that for a moment. One of the roles um, of, of the true prophet is to intercede on behalf of the people. And we see Moses doing this. Abraham, of course, does this. Uh, and above all, Jesus does this. And he still, to this day, we, we tend to think of that intercessory role as being part of his priesthood. But clearly here, you know, there's a lot of overlap between the roles of prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus is all of those things wrapped up in one. So, so um you know, we then need to remember that as as God's prophets, priests, and kings, you know, who've been sanctified in baptism to be this holy nation, um, one of the best things we can do for ourselves and for the people around us is to intercede, to pray, mm-hmm. and and uh, not to make false promises, you know, <laughs> not to just simply live by platitudes and, you know, give this advice, well, everything's going to be fine. Well, you don't know that, but mm-hmm. I will be praying for you, and I will be interceding for you, and asking the Lord to bless you. That's, I think, the best thing we can do. I'm always at a loss as to what to say to people after, you know, they've lost a loved one. Um, it's, it's even difficult for pastors to come up with the right words. And 
the thing the thing that I've settled on is focusing on what the Lord promises in Scripture. You know, this baptized believer is with the Lord, and we will have a happy reunion with them one day. In the meantime, the Lord promises to watch over you through this period of time, comfort you in your grief, and I will be praying for you. Mm-hmm. I think because you can't do anything for somebody uh, after a loved one's died. <laughs> you can't make the person come back. You can't fill that void. So I think that our intercession on behalf of the others uh, is is an important role that we dare not neglect. Certainly, and I think it, I mean it ties in precisely to what you were saying earlier about taking refuge in the Lord in the midst of all of these things that are happening that we don't know what to do with and can't know what's going on. What do we do? We take refuge in the Lord by praying. And and Jeremiah certainly stands as an example of that prayer throughout his book. You mentioned his laments early on and and his intercession for the people as well really stands out. Particularly, I mean, the Lord tells him on multiple occasions, don't pray for this people. I'm not going to hear it. And Jeremiah still does it. And I mean, that stands in such great contrast to these false prophets who surely had to appear more pious than Jeremiah at this point. You know, I mean, you've got Jeremiah saying you should surrender to the Babylonians. And you've got these false prophets who are saying, don't worry about it. We're in Judah. Everything's okay. Who looks more pious? Certainly it's the false prophets. But what's Jeremiah doing? He's there interceding for the people, even when the Lord says not to. And what do the false prophets do? They're just spewing off the top of their head. What do you call them? Knuckleheads? That's a that's a good word. <laughs> right. And it's it's kind of like with you know with Abraham, as Paul point, points out in, in Romans four. He hoped against hope, or he, you know, he hoped against expectation and and didn't consider that, you know, his his hundred year old body being as good as dead and Sarah's womb being barren. 90 years old, to impede the promises of God. And so Jeremiah clung to the Lord's promise from Exodus that he is kind and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relents. Hmm. You know, he relents. And so, you know, jo- or Joel, return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding for steadfast, in steadfast love. And he relents from disaster. So, you know, I think Jeremiah probably experienced the same thing Habakkuk did is looking around and saying, how could this be happening? Um, but the Lord had made Jeremiah's head as hard as iron and, you know, <laughs> gave him this, this kind of stubborn tenacity of faith to continue to commend everything into the Lord's hands and preach hard words to a very uh, resistant people. Tell us a little bit about the very last verse of our text, Pastor Roth. As you said, some of the vessels are still there in Jerusalem at this point. It sounds like Jeremiah says these two will be carried off, but there is a note of hope there at the end of, of our text. Yeah, so so we get you know a lot of a lot of you know very uh, heavy law in this this passage, but then the Lord returns to giving promises. So they, these vessels shall be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. And, you know, you think about the Benedictus in Luke chapter 1. The Lord has visited and redeemed his people. Um, or Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, that the city did not recognize the time of its visitation. You know, the, the, when the Lord comes to visit in his mercy, this is gospel, this is good news. And what does he do when he brings the gospel? I will bring them back and restore them to this place. They will be back on Zion, back in the city of the Lord, back where they belong. And goodness, it made me think of 1 Peter 2, 25, you were straying like sheep, 
but now you've been returned, passive verb, been returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the straying people of God, the exiled people of God, the promise is that they will be brought back into the Lord's holy presence so that he can continue to sanctify them. Pastor Roth, with just about three minutes left on the morning, final thoughts on our text, and particularly how do we connect this text to the work of our Lord Jesus Christ? So um, I think, uh, first of all, yes, to connect to the Lord Jesus. Um, The word that sticks out above all is yoke, right? And the, uh, the yoke that the Judeans would have borne and these other nations would have borne if they, you know, chose to simply submit to Nebuchadnezzar's rule still would have been a very harsh one. Um, and it would have been a, a, a temporal yoke, right? There was nothing spiritual about this. Um, the, even the people that were believers in the promises of God and the promises of the Messiah still would have suffered under a heavy yoke. You do not want to be a slave, especially under an ancient despot like Nebuchadnezzar. But the yoke that the Lord puts upon us is not a heavy one or a burdensome one. So Jesus says in Matthew 11, and I'm actually going to start with verse 27 because I think it's, it's crucial for recognizing who it is that's speaking here. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, Jesus says, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is a paradoxical yoke because yokes are heavy and they press down upon you. They constrain you. But in this case, we receive a yoke that is uh, that gives us forgiveness of sins, life, salvation, and relieves of us the heaviest burden of all, and that is the guilt of our sins. That's why he says that we receive rest for our souls when we take upon ourselves his yoke. And I mentioned marriage earlier. I think it's an interesting term, right? Conjugal means yoke together. And we as Christians are part of the bride of Christ, and he has taken himself a bride. And so we are yoked together with him now and forever. And what could be more joyful and peaceful than to be yoked to the loving Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins and was raised for our justification. Pastor Carl Roth is the pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 1 to 22. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. My pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Jeremiah or comments on the series, we'd love to hear from you. Send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the app and the open mic feature there to record up to a 60-second message to send to us. Love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.